When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. our first ever episode Woo, exciting um we thought we'd talk a little bit about why we want to do this and what you can expect from us and so we've each found a quote that we feel brings you something of what you can expect um anna you start um so mine's just a very short one and it's from chris krause's i love dick which uh, is a book that i love and you can tell from the title doesn't take itself overly seriously but is serious about uh you know things that might be considered silly or teenage um, and in that she says, study is a fan club meeting, the only kind. And that for me just says a lot about the level of enthusiasm and sincerity that I think sometimes people think is devaluing to criticism. Um, well, that's that exactly like. it, isn't it? It's if you like something too much, somehow that takes something away from it, which is actually speaks to what I've picked, which is from the sci-fi author John Scalzi. And he, slightly longer, bear with us, he writes... Many people believe geekdom is defined by a love of a thing, but I think, and my experience of geekdom bears on this thinking, that the true sign of a geek is a delight in sharing a thing. It's the major difference between a geek and a hipster, you know. When a hipster sees someone else grooving on the thing they love, their reaction is to say, oh crap, now the wrong people like the thing I love. When a geek sees someone else grooving on the thing they love, their reaction is to say, oh my god, you love what I love, come with me and let us love it together. Which is just a sentiment... I really, really like. And it's something that I've found a lot on the internet in the last few years, is finding those communities of people who love the thing that you love and that are excited to love it with you. Not that kind of hipster thing of, oh, well, actually, I was into them like before this big album. And, you know, so now like I'm on to the next cool thing. Um, you can tell by the voice I'm doing that I take these people very seriously and really value <laughs> what they're saying. Um, but I think that's what we wanted to get to, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think that element of sharing there, that's one thing we're going to try and do every week is share something with each other that we really love. And yeah, and hopefully get you to share that with us too. Mm, and yeah, try new things and try things that perhaps get bad press or bad mainstream press, but a lot of sort of internet only love. Um, I will say now that a lot of this is going to live on Tumblr. That's where <laughs> a lot of the love is. Um, and also we should say that we are British and we come at this from a British perspective and while that's not particularly rare or anything the things that I love to read about about pop culture often come from America they I feel like America has a much 
better pop culture conversation perhaps than we do here yeah i think so i mean the sites certainly that i read like really good recaps funny recaps on are basically all american um and although we're not you know we're going to talk a lot about american tv and american films and music etc etc we're still going to um hopefully bring a bit of britishness to it and some of the stuff from here as well and there will i think occasionally be things that only British people will have heard of, for instance, there are some, <laughs> or understand. There are some BBC sitcoms from the 90s that I have a lot of feelings about <laughs> that I want to talk about. Um, but um, but yeah, so that's where we perceive there to be a gap and where we wanted to, to get in there, really. So with that in mind, on with the podcast. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about Grey, uh, which is part of the Fifty Shades of Grey series of books. It's not one of the trilogy, but a new book written from Christian Grey's perspective. Um, we tried our very, very best in the name of the podcast to take this book really seriously. And I'm afraid to say that I personally could not. Caroline? No, I couldn't either. I mean, I was reading it on a, on a Kindle, so I can say proudly, in fact, that I read 40% of this book precisely. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so almost half, and I just could not, could not take it seriously. I'm really impressed that you made it 40% of the way through. I managed 100 pages, which I really, I battled my way through those 100 pages, and looking at the rest of the book to go was just so disheartening. Um, I Yeah, I feel like one of the real problems with this book was not that, I mean, the quality of the writing is bad. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but it was so boring. I really, I was genuinely bored, and... and uh, I mean, I did, to be fair to the book, I didn't actually get to any of the real sex. So <laughs> that's, you know, probably not in its favour. But I just found it, I don't know about you, but I found it really boring. It is It is quite tedious. Um, and it's also the way, the way it juxtaposes sort of long narrative descriptions of him getting in his helicopter and him, you know, going for lunch and stuff with sort of strange italic interjections of his inner monologue is very odd to read you get sort of a page of um i'm i'm going for a run i'm not thinking about how much i want to have sex with this girl and then you just get sort of interjections of of his kind of inner monologue of his childhood trauma and stuff it's a very strange sort of it's it's a very jumpy way to read yeah it's always odd because the book is already his inner monologue and then he yeah. sometimes has an extra layer i don't know apparently i i've i've not read the uh the 50 shades of gray trilogy you have i know there's a whole thing in there about an inner goddess is it a similar yeah, so um i have read all three of those books for reasons i really can't explain <laughs> i just did um it was sort of like i think i read them all in one weekend i just actually wow. that that is something that I feel like is a real indictment of this book, is that I was at least able to tear through the previous three, knowing fully well how bad they were, but kind of enjoying laughing at it and it was moving along pretty quick. Whereas this was, as you say, very dreary and dull and just didn't seem to move. But yes, one of the more hilarious things about the uh, original trilogy is that Anna, Anastasia Steele, improbable name, <laughs> let's just get that out straight away, um, who is the heroine i suppose um she has this basically there are a lot of people in her head <laughs> because she has um everything is from her point of view already but on top of that you have this extra layer of she's got her her subconscious who is described doing all kinds of things as sort of like 
putting on heels and dancing or <laughs> uh, lying back exhausted on a chaise lounge and she's got her inner goddess. So she's got this kind of competing uh, elements in her head of the, you know, the, the sort of sexy one that wants her to take risks and the, the sort of conservative one that wants her to be safe, all competing in her head. And it just gets quite noisy as the reader. <laughs> you, you just sort of, you, you get a bit confused as to who's talking to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if um, that's one of the things that makes this a bit more dreary as a book in comparison is he's obviously supposed to be very tortured, Christian Grey. So there's sort of a lot of him rambling about whether it's justifiable for him to do X, Y or Z or why he feels X, Y or Z or, you know, I thought of my mother, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Then it's just that that for me was was not exciting I or think the, other, the other thing that um, made this much less readable was the fact that he just doesn't have any friends <laughs> he doesn't ha- there are almost no other characters are only in it very briefly and then they go away again because he doesn't like people he um, likes his pas and you know his drivers and things like that but there's no emotion attached to them they're just efficient and and they only speak in response to his commands right they don't ever really get to offer opinions or observations sure which i think is partly what you know, for a book that's so heavily dominated by one character's psyche, you have to really want to spend time there, and you just don't with him. But we should say as well that another thing that is actually, I think, genuinely innovative about this book, because I really can't think of another example, is that whilst this is taking the same character, this is also running the same events. So the timeline is exactly the same as in the first Fifty Shades book. We're just seeing the events from the other side. That's sort of the gimmick of the whole thing and the only other example i can think of where this has happened is in one of the game of thrones books where um but for a different reason mm. um george r. r martin he sort of it all got a bit big and out of hand so rather than having the narrative voice alternate between all the characters through the chapters he had to sort of split the world in half geographically so you got all the people in the north and then we went back to the same beginning of the same time period and you got all the people in the south and then they joined up again later on because it was just too unwieldy that's the only other book i've read that has this same sense of rerunning time but from a different perspective yeah and i think especially because these are two different books these aren't even the same events looked Mm. at from two you know different angles within the same book these are you're committing to reading the entire you know run of events again Mm. um i mean maybe that's a really obvious example that we're missing out on listeners do let us know but i can't think i can't think of any classics or anything like that 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 use that technique especially not written by the same person Mm. both versions so that is yeah that's definitely in its favor um but we just we can't we're kind of skirting around the main (laughs) issue here which is that the book is just really really bad and we wanted to kind of give you a few examples of this for me the main one was how much Christian Grey... So we should say, you know, if you happen not to know, he is completely obsessed with this woman, Anastasia Steele. Um, He really wants her to be his submissive, um, and he's kind of courting her to enter this kind of um, BDSM relationship Mm -hmm. with him. Um, She's completely inexperienced and has never done anything like this before. It emerges later on. Sorry, spoilers. But you've read the first book so you wouldn't know you won't mind um <laughs> that she's never even had sex before let alone entered the kind of kink community or anything like yeah. that um so we get a lot of his kind of his longing for her and his obsession which completely weirdly is expressed through his love for orchards <laughs> i cannot express to you how weird this is that um so 
He says, fuck, does she smell and taste good? An orchard in springtime and I want my fill. <laughs> Where are these orchards? Where are these orchards to? that he's going to? And why, why, why is the orchard the, the thing that he desires most? I just... It's, it's funny because I think basically what it reveals, I mean, yes, he's constantly talking about these orchards There's uh, and uh, her, her eyes looking like the rain and uh, all these sort of weird natural phenomena that he somehow gleans within her normal human body. Um, and uh, it's very, to use a phrase that I don't like to use, I'm talking about the stereotypical impression of this, it's very teenage girl, his mm. entire outlook on everything. He constantly talks about how much he loves to hold her hand, uh, all these things. It's, it's a very traditional romance story with all the patriarchal problems of a typical, you know, of that storyline. But he's sort of the girl. Yeah, although, but then on another level, he's also pushing her into what is a very unequal and potentially quite abusive relationship where the contract he wants her to sign doesn't just detail the kind of kinky sex they'll do together it's also to do with how often she'll exercise and how much she'll sleep and um what she'll eat and how often which is sort of classic controlling of an abuse yeah (laughs) um so that's there's there's also that very unsettling though which got written about and very well um at the time when the first books came out including by the new statesman's own laurie penny which we'll we'll link to in the in the show notes we're not going to go into that here but um one more thing that we should we should just reference, and this is, I think, almost the the most interesting and most serious aspect of this book, is its origins. So, in in the uh, the sort of introduction to the book, um, E. L. James says, you know, this is for all the people who asked me to do this, who asked me to write from Christian's point of view, um, and this goes back to the book's origins as Twilight fan fiction. Mm online that she still got this idea of service to her fans and community and community that you know her fans wanted her to write this book and so she's written it and i suppose that's where 50 shades of gray has really broken ground and it's been a tremendous sort of global bestseller but it was once fan fiction mm. and a lot of the criti- and this is what really annoys me a lot of the criticisms have focused on how bad it is and its origins as fan fiction and i think those two things should be completely separate it, the book is bad We've said that. We didn't like it. We found it dreary and difficult to read. That has nothing to do with the fact that it was once fan fiction. Exactly. And the the thing that's really disappointing about it is on the most basic level of like sentence structure, you know, trying to set a scene, trying to give you insight into a character's psyche. This this book just fails. And so much fan fiction out there doesn't at all. And there's been a lot of sort of uh, snobby, superior critiques of the book saying like, aha, see, we told you fan fiction was no good and shouldn't be you know, published mainstreamly like original, in quotation marks, because, you know, how, how original is anything discussed? Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- it's really annoying that people are using this as a, as a sort of point against fan fiction when it just shouldn't be at all. Where there are so many other potentially interesting things happening, I suppose it has kind of blazed a trail in the sense that maybe publishers and filmmakers are now willing to accept that good and and or commercially viable things could come out of original internet-based fiction rather than the more traditional routes of, I don't know, publishing via your agent and via a traditional publishing house and stuff. Mm. Um, uh, There are small presses sort of springing up dedicated specifically to to, uh, 
writing uh, to publishing fan originating works and that kind of thing and there's some really interesting things happening there um but i think what we are stuck with now forever especially in the sort of mainstream press is that 50 shades of gray and gray its companion will will be the kind of totemic yeah, example it's a touchstone for mm. for fan fiction now for many people who perhaps maybe like you and i didn't grow up on the internet reading mm. bits of fan fiction uh, that's going to be their introduction to it or their sort of idea abstract idea of it which is just a real shame mm. well i can't say that we encourage you to read this book because we don't <laughs> go and read some good fan fiction instead. read some good fan fiction and also there's some good writing about it that we will link you to yeah absolutely Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we're joined by our colleague, Kate Mossman, who is the New Statesman's arts editor and pop critic and all-round brilliant person to talk about music. And she's smiling now, but... That's because she knows I'm right. Um, <laughs> and she's going to tell us about this new film about Amy Winehouse that she's been writing about. Um, it's just called Amy, is that right, yeah. Kate? It's by um, Asif Kapadia, who did Senna, uh, which was a great film, actually, a few years ago. Um, obviously, the biopic of Ayrton Senna. And this has been in the running for a long time, and I was sort of looking forward to this, because what I noticed when Amy Winehouse died is how quickly she sort of disappeared and people stopped talking about her. And I waited for the intelligent retrospectives and the box mm. sets and the intelligent books and the tribute album and the tribute concert. And these things never happened. Um, and I think the reason for that was that the way the circumstance of the last few years of her life were so uncomfortable, so, so horrible to watch. And we were all involved in it somehow because it was a red top thing. Um, we were just staring. We were watching this kind of self-destruction on stage that... Um, 
I think people didn't really want to revisit it. She became frozen in the era in which she lived and died. And it was recent history. And nothing's mm. as unpleasant to go back to as recent history. Mm. It was, you know, trilbies and sailor tats and Blake and baby shambles and Camden in about 2009. And we kind of moved on, you know. Kind of so, wanted to forget about it. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of distasteful yeah. somehow. It's weird. And um, so I thought this was going to be the intelligent, um, considered retrospective with the luxury of hindsight and um, a bit of... Uh, refocusing on the music and it's a funny film because it certainly starts off suggesting that's what it's going to be Um, it's two and a half hours long and about half an hour in it becomes apparent that this is a a sort of very mawkish um, tabloid kind of movie which uses um, to create its drama exactly the methods that it sort of criticizes um, the public for having used with Amy Winehouse and the press for having used with her at the time so it's got a really strange innovation in it, which is that it doesn't have any um, video footage of any of the interviewees. It's just their voices. And I don't know whether... They, I suspect this is because some people, like her best mates, didn't want to be filmed because they're quite private and mm. there's something you know confidential about them. They, their contributions are very moving, the two best mates. They tried to get her into rehab repeatedly. But if you couldn't have the face of one person you had to kind of make that uniform throughout the film. And the result of that is that um, Blake Fielder Civil, who was her kind of Svengali husband, as we all know, was in prison a lot of the time when he was married to her, comes across as a complete monster because his voice is so shot and so freaky (laughs) and you can't see his face. So all you hear is things like, I was cutting my wrists from the age of nine. Amy always said we were like twins. And you think, God, what does this guy look like? And you've got this kind of image of this golem-like bloke, you know, long mm. of, of tooth and snaggled of hair. And um, it, it's a very strange, um, sort of very uneasy experience watching the film. Actually. So their voices just overlay footage? They overlay footage of, of those people appearing with Amy in her lifetime and then also with um, uh, increasingly lingering, slowed-down footage of, of Winehouse herself... Um, there were some certain things I really objected to in this, which was, um, you know, famously she would she'd drink on stage towards the end of her life and she would um, screw up and slur her words and stop singing. And where they could have um, covered that era in a still footage and a bit of discussion of that time, we get the entire length of a song of, the, you know, the Eden Sessions or the famous, the other famous concerts that she sort of messed up at. Um so there's a lot about this this woman being watched all over again with exactly the same attitude of horror and dismay that she had during her lifetime. And I kind of felt that it's an opportunity as a director to have sort of repackaged her a little bit hmm. um, and reminded people why during her lifetime she was actually considered a legend she was a voice that was utterly out of time nobody sounded like her and no one has sounded like her since although many have tried and you sort of lose that sense of the musician and this was the chance you let let's remind the audience that amy winehouse was a first and foremost a great jazz musician and that she was unusual and he sort of starts to be doing that and then he sort of veers off and and goes down the same road that that we all did during her life so it sounds like there was sort of an opportunity there when you're talking about people being watched to find a new way of watching that was missed. Yeah, and, and to sort of... I, I think I could have done with a bit more um, a bit more analysis, really, of why people... I think... I remember being at her final Glastonbury performance and I remember looking around the face of the audience and there was a hardness on everyone's faces. 
The way people dealt with Amy Winehouse at the time was that they covered their discomfort up with irritation. They were personally inconvenienced by the fact that she was messing up on stage. Or they told really, really sardonic jokes. And the film is actually good in that it shows some of her early champions, like um, uh, a couple of like the big American talk show hosts who had her on in the early days. By the end of her life, they're telling jokes and in, their, in the studio audience and everyone's laughing and stuff. And she's still alive and they're sort of talking about uh, drug overdoses and the fact that, you know, she's going to cark it soon. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a sort of, there could have been a bit more analysis of, of the, the sense of complicitness that the audience had in, I mean, I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as, it's fair to say that, you know, we caused her downfall. I do actually think that in a funny kind of way, she, she's pre-Twitter. Mm. She, I wonder how she would have fared uh, behaving the way she did in the, the sort of Twitter world. Mm. I wonder whether, um the outraged masses might have actually offered a bit of support that might have made a difference. There might have been a, a space for people who did want to support her to exactly. organise a bit almost. Exactly, there would have been at least yeah. an argument, wouldn't there, mm. two sides. Whereas she had much more the Princess Diana kind of role in that mm. she was alone in this little bubble mm. and she was playing it up and she was going out there with bleeding feet and sort of, you know, mess all over her face because she wanted to get into the tabloids for whatever confused mm. reason that you do at that point. But definitely it was an impenetrable world of her versus the tabloids and, and that was that. And there wasn't much intrusion from her. Uh... And I don't, because I haven't seen the film yet, but um, I watched, There's it's the film's got quite a fancy website with lots of clips on. I watched all these clips. And there there are some pretty horrible bits of, as you say, just them playing long, long shots zoomed in on her face at a gig where she looks completely confused and you keep thinking any second they're going to cut away to something else and they just don't so I suppose that's kind of an artistic choice they've made but it feels very it's very unhappy yeah um and I'm not entirely sure it would happen with a a male Mm. star I think there is an element of of that you know that it's it's not it's maybe not as dark as it feels sometimes but you know to see a, a female um, uh, artists suffering like that. You, you. There's sort of something. To some people, there's something sort of darkly beautiful about that. Anna, you sent me a link to a an article about this very comparing this Amy film with a, a I think soon to be released one about Kurt Cobain. Yeah, I think it was out. It's out already. I think maybe, but it, um, yeah, they've co- sort of coincided together. Montage um, of heck. Yeah, montage, montage of, of heck. That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, and yeah, in her piece, Kurt's kind of comparing and contrasting the two, she talks about the way media dotes over its tortured male artists while undermining the personal struggles of women who suffer the same. This is Molly Bochemin at Pitchfork. Yeah, do you, do you feel that sense, Kate? I don't feel that they those struggles are ever undermined, but I think that they are focused on in a different way and they are romanticised in a way that they're not with male artists because uh, you just need to look at the story of um, Sandy Denny. I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? These people died too young because they couldn't cope with fame and because they went off the rails and they drank themselves to death. This is what happened with Sandy Denny. She fell down the stairs. Billie Holiday died a similar way. There were strong men in those stories. And so on one level, you, you this, these were the facts. This is what happens if we tell this story. We've got to tell how this person ended. On another level, I do feel that the, the tragedies become everything about the artist possibly for a young female artist in a way that maybe they don't for the men Mm. and then when you listen to the music you listen with that in mind and everyone feels you know very very sad about Sandy Denny who is a proper boy's interest I mean men are you know right 
huge books about Sandy Denny because of, I suppose, Fairport Convention draws a sort of very male audience in some ways. Um, but there is that kind of, you know, oh, I mean, my, a male friend of mine says, said, there's always that feeling with those women that in the back of your mind you think, oh, if only they'd met me, I could have stopped it. Mm. <laughs> it's a kind of saviour thing, isn't there? Yeah, thing, a protective thing. And maybe women feel that way about, about Kurt Cobain, but I just think there's a there's a slightly different edge to it. It's like you don't quite want to watch the suffering as much when it's a bloke, but for some reason you want to watch the suffering when there's it's a There's something almost, yeah, considered beautiful about it when yeah, it's women. Yeah, yeah. I also think there's another... Generally, I mean, maybe this is oversimplifying it, but it, people find it easier to untangle the life and the art a little bit more with those male stars. It's, it's somehow, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, that's just great great music regardless, um, and it doesn't have to be quite so I'd related. I'd like to know why that is, because it's true. And mm. it's it's an absolute mystery, because you do you definitely know the sad story of Ian Curtis, but you don't listen to all those songs thinking about his suicide mm. and what really bugs me about this Winehouse film in fact is that I really think that her music does stand apart from her life even though bizarrely it is so wrapped up in her stories they were so naked the way she was writing these songs it was all about personal experience but they're good enough that they exist outside that um, and I just hope they continue to in people's minds because this film is doing everything it can to stop that <laughs> thanks very much Kate now this is the first of a regular spot on the seriously podcast where anna and i assign each other things we've never tried before to have a go at so for this first one Anna made me a playlist of her favourite One Direction songs. I've never really listened to One Direction, it's just never really crossed my radar before, but I absolutely love this playlist that you've you've made for me. (laughs) Um, I listened to it it while I was reading Grey, and it was really what got me through. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of, I think it's very contrasting atmosphere. These are very upbeat. I I intentionally picked some of their, like, most upbeat, uh, even if the lyrics are sad, Mm. uh, catchy songs. Um, so we'll share the playlist with you. Uh, we'll put a link out there. Um, did you have a favourite? I did. It was it was Heartache, I think it's called. Heart Attack. Heart Attack, Heart yeah. Attack. Um, which was just, oh, it was just so sort of poppy and upbeat and it reminded me of the, you know, the best stuff I love from Taylor Swift and that kind of thing of really kind of, really, really upbeat, but as you say, sad lyrics and somehow the combination totally works. And I'm like, I still don't really know much about One Direction, apart from that they have zillions of fans, <laughs> lots of whom are teenage girls who are really, really dedicated yep. into it. I don't know much about the kind of fandom and the culture around it, but I think I might now have a have a look. I it's might... nice to get into it through mm. the music. I mean, I don't know if it was the music or the pretty boys that first attracted <laughs> me to the band. Uh, not sure. But um, I-, I like that you liked Heart Attack, which confirms my suspicion that uh, Take Me Home, which is their second album, 
uh, I think from 2013, uh, is their best one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tried to pick two songs from each album on this playlist, but in the end I went for one from their first one because I think the first one is just not that good, which was one thing. And then three from the second mm-hmm. one, and then two from the from three and four. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think there's just a real... Uh, there's something so youthful about it um, that I really, really love. And it, if if there's anyone listening who's, you know, not uh, a young woman or teenage girl who wonders if it's not for them there's a really great piece out there that um, I'll link to uh, from a writer who talks about listening to One Direction basically making her think about death mm. <laughs> in a really co- quite really interesting because you know they're called One Direction they're young but the tragedy of listening to One Direction is that you know that they're only going to get old and like die <laughs> <laughs> does that make sense yeah that totally makes sense that had not occurred to me before but yeah, that that does that does really make sense, and now I feel sad about my enjoyment of their upbeat pop songs. Yeah, so mission accomplished. Great. So yeah, so that was me listening to One Direction for the first time. For next week's episode, I'm going to assign Anna uh, some videos from the web series, the YouTube series, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is a web video adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Which I like Pride and Prejudice. I like. I, I collect adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. I seek them out. I watch them. I've read a lot of the terrible sequels to Pride and Prejudice. Oh, but the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is one of the most innovative and exciting adaptations I've seen of it ever, I think. Oh, well, I can't wait. Um, so, yeah. So, Anna's going to watch that next week and we'll hear her thoughts then. And uh, if you want to watch along, by all means, do. And we'll we'll then we can discuss our love for it and you can think about yours. Uh, we'll put a link in to the mm. Lizzie Bennet Diary videos. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Anna Leskovich. And I'm Caroline Grampton. We're on Twitter at srslypod. You can send us your emails. We'd love to hear from you. srslypod at gmail.com. And you can find all the links we've mentioned, plus pictures, clips, videos, everything else, on newstatesman.com forward slash srsly. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.